Please do join me now in taking out your Bibles once again and turning to Paul's letter to the Ephesians. As we spend time now in God's Word, let's go to Him once again asking for His help. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we are a people in great need. We are in need of your words of truth to change us from the inside out. We are in need of the conviction, the comfort, and the call of your spirit. So, Father, be pleased to speak to us by your spirit through your word today. Give us ears to hear and hearts to receive your truth. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is a quick mini series. Uh, week one last week, week two uh, this week, um, the beginning last week, and the end. Um, the title uh, is What's in a Name? Um, if you're just thinking about church names, uh, sometimes it's where it's located. Sometimes it's when it was established. Was it the first one or the second one or the third one? Um, In the case of grace and peace, the question is not where or when so much as it is what. And even more than what, who, as the very name should always keep us, remind us of the grace and the peace that we have in Jesus. And indeed, the name of this church, um, I hope, has and will serve as an anchor holding this church to the historic Christian gospel, as well as an engine that moves the church forward in ministry, both internally and externally. And here, it's the grace and the peace of the gospel. Now, the gospel is what? Of course, it's good news It's not advice. And the reason we keep saying that, it's so easy to hear God's word as advice. It's news. It's news first and foremost. And as a result of the news, of course, we act on it. We we do things in response to the news. And what is the main response to news? It's you believe it or you don't believe it. And if you believe it, you respond to it. And you do things from now on differently in view of the news. And the major effect of the gospel, the major effect of this good news is peace. And if it's the gospel of God's grace in Jesus, then grace has appeared. And because grace has appeared, then peace has arrived. Last week when we looked at Paul's letter to Titus, uh, chapter 2, we we saw that grace has appeared. And we saw that grace saves us, grace trains us in two directions, to say yes to certain things and no to other things. And grace orients us to a person because grace appeared when Jesus appeared. And we saw last week that grace changes us at the very level of our desires so that our default got to 
is changed. It becomes our get to. The, the grace of Jesus changes our got to into our get to. Well, today we're going to be looking at peace has arrived. And if you think about the relationship between grace and peace, it's almost like the gospel cause and the gospel effect. Some of us were alive in 1971, a summer of coming off of the, the chaotic 60s. It was the early 70s, it was the Vietnam War, it was some inflation, it was social unrest, and there had been assassinations in the preceding years. And one of the members of the Beatles, John Lennon, wrote a song called Imagine, and it was his best, most well-received solo hit. And the lyrics envisioned a world of unity and peace. Let's listen for a moment to some of these words. It starts off, imagine there's no heaven. And it goes on to imagine that there's no hell. And then another verse says this, imagine there's no countries. It isn't hard to do, nothing to kill or die for and no religion too. Imagine all the people living life in peace. Well, today we're not going to have to imagine all the people living life in peace. Rather, we're going to hear the good news of people living life in peace through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, just a little bit of information about Ephesians, that wealthy port city, the capital of the Roman province of Asia Minor, now modern-day Turkey. Paul is in Rome under house arrest. It's about 60 to 62 AD, and he writes this letter to the church in Ephesus where he had, he had ministered for a significant amount of time. And, and primarily here, Paul is addressing the Gentiles, Paul the Jew, to the Ephesian church, primarily made up of Gentiles. In chapter 1, Paul has a prayer. You see in verses 18 and 19 that people, would, they would know the hope, they would know the riches, they would know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. And in chapter 2, Paul provides two evidences of that power. The first is raising the dead to life, raising the spiritually dead to to life through faith in Christ. And we see that in the first 10 verses of chapter 2. And then in our text today, we'll see making two people one. We see kind of a focus on the individual level and now a level of the corporate or the church. And we'll see today God's power to restore not only broken human life, but broken human community. Join with me as I read verses 11 through 22 of Ephesians chapter 2. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. 
For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the chief corner, being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Well, let's summarize real quickly our text by looking at the structure of the text. And here, Paul paints three portraits. In verses 11 and 12, it's who we once were. It's a portrait of alienated humanity. People who are separated from God, who are, have no hope. They're without God. It's a portrait of an alienated humanity. But then in verses 13 through 18, it's a portrait of the peacemaking Christ, what Jesus Christ has done. We read that Jesus has made peace, that he has preached peace. And then finally, in verses 19 through 22, it's a portrait of God's new society. It's a portrait of the church, who we have now become. We've become citizens in a kingdom, members of a family. We've become living stones, as it were, in a temple. So three portraits, alienated humanity, a peacemaking Christ, and God's new society. And right in the middle of this, in verse 14, we see Jesus, his person, who he is, and his work. Now remember, just like we saw in Titus 2, that, that what Jesus has done is determined by who he is. Because Jesus is the grace of God, he saves, as it were, by grace. Because, as we see in our text, that Jesus himself is our peace. Now, if you were to ask the question, who is Jesus, or be asked the question, of course, Scripture gives us lots of good answers. The, the Son of God, the Savior, the Lord, uh, the one perfect man, uh, the friend of sinners. But here, we read Paul make an astounding statement. He himself is our peace. And the way it's, it's brought together, it's, it's, it's emphatic. It would be highlighted in yellow. It would be bold. It would be italics. It would be, if you had a text that kind of had a, um, what do you call those, gifts, you know, it would blink. You know, it, it's, it's emphatic. He himself, he only, there is no other. There's no other peace. Paul is saying, and we'll get to that some more. Now, it's not 
so surprising that Paul could say that because Paul knows the, the Old Testament. He knows Isaiah's prophecy in chapter 9 of the coming one, the coming Messiah, who would be, among other things, the Prince of Peace. He, he knew of the prophecy of Micah in chapter 5, writing that a ruler would come from Bethlehem and he shall be their peace. So you have Old Testament allusions and leans, leanings forward to the fact that peace is not just going to come as some kind of um, period of, of no conflict, but peace is going to come through a person, through the Messiah. Because Paul is saying because Jesus himself is peace, he can make peace. And because he himself is peace, he can preach peace. Now we're going to spend the next few minutes thinking about the consequences of this declaration that Jesus Christ is our peace. In other words, we're going to consider the so what of the reality that Jesus Christ himself is our peace. Now the focus of our text this morning has to do with the creation of one new man in Christ, the reconciliation of Jew and Gentile. And in order to get there, I want us to keep a particular statement in mind. And that is this. There can be no peace between people unless there is peace within people. And there will be no peace within people until they are at peace with God. Let me say that again. There can be no peace between people unless there is peace within people. And there will be no peace within people until they are at peace with God. And so if Jesus Christ is our peace, then we can see from our text that at least three things are true. First of all, our relationship with God is restored. Our relationship with God is restored. Now, again, the relationship between God and man, between creator and creature has been broken. It's a part broken by sin. And yet in verse 13, we read that we have been brought near by the blood of Christ, that, that the work of Christ is reconciling us both to God through the cross and that in verse 18 we read through him that is through Jesus we both have access in one spirit to the father now in addition to this reconciliation that the focus is on between Jew and Gentile between man and man the horizontal of course to get there you've got to go first seeing that this relationship with God is restored and our text says that it says that we are citizens of God's kingdom. We are members of God's household. We are, again, living stones, as Peter would use that exact language, being built together. We see, again, the emphasis on through the cross. Through the cross. When Paul wrote the church in Colossians, in the early part of his letter, he said this, about Jesus, beginning in verse 18 of chapter 1 of Colossians. And Jesus is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile 
to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Making peace by the blood of his cross. And so here, Paul is not just emphasizing the person of Jesus. He himself is our peace. It's the work of Christ, specifically the substitutionary atoning work of Jesus on the cross. Now, let's ask ourselves this question. Who is our greatest enemy? Is it our neighbor who we don't get along with? Is it our political opponent? Is it someone who looks different from us? Is that our greatest enemy? Well, Scripture's pretty clear that until someone comes to faith in Jesus, their greatest enemy is God, the Creator. But let's ask the question, if, if, if that's the situation, that we have this great enemy, then who is our great friend? Well, it's, of course, Jesus, the one who makes peace between God and man. But you've got to understand that correctly, of course. Jesus is not opposed to his Father. No, the Trinity is united. But it's helpful to think that until faith in Christ, God is our enemy. And, and through faith in Christ, God indeed becomes our friend. Robert Lethem in The Work of Christ says this, By his propitiatory sacrifice, that is, exhausting the wrath, by his propitiatory sacrifice on the cross, Christ has brought us out of a state of enmity with God and into friendship. The original fellowship that Adam enjoyed with God before the fall has been restored. We are now at peace with him. Enmity gone. Peace in its place. So if Jesus Christ is our peace, well, not only is our relationship with God restored, but also our relationship to or with ourself is finding rest. Well, where do we see that exactly? Well, we really see it detailed in verses 1 through 10 of chapter 2, the, the verses that precede what we're looking at in detail. Salvation by grace through faith. You see, we're at rest. We're finding rest. Why? Because we're no longer exhausted by the unending effort of trying to work our way to God. Why? Because God has come to us. We're no longer weighed down by guilt. Why? Because the guilt has been lifted, has been removed by Christ. Now, if anything is true today, it seems like many people are living lives of fatigue, of exhaustion. They are weighed down and burdened, whether it's physical, mental, emotional, spiritual. The symptoms are out there. We're tired. We're exhausted. We're weighed down. And Scripture, with the spiritual restlessness, with the spiritual exhaustion, with the, the guilt, the Scripture says, do this. This is the prescription. This is the treatment. Turn to Christ. Here we are on Reformation Sunday. We think back to Martin Luther. Here is a man 
utterly exhausted, frustrated, not at rest, tired, weighed down, trying to keep the law of God, trying to be right with God. No assurance, only more effort. And then, of course, he comes into a new understanding of Romans, understanding salvation, that, the, that, that he, he sees that he shouldn't be ashamed of the gospel because the gospel is the is salvation of God for all who believe. He sees that, that God's righteousness was not something that he had to work up. It was something that was given to him through faith in Jesus. It was as if Luther heard the words from Matthew 11, the words of Jesus, come to me and I will give you rest. It's almost as if Luther was hearing a different passage, come to me and let me tell you what you need to do. Come to me and here are the requirements. No, Jesus says, come to me. Those of you who are tired and weary, heavy laden and what? I will give you rest and you will find rest for your souls. Are you exhausted right now spiritually? Are you weighed down spiritually? Our call to worship had God calling us to come to him because it's there that we'll find Food that will sustain us. It's there that we will find the rest that we need. And again, the emphasis is on the work of Jesus on the cross. We see it in verse 16, through the cross. Because the cross shows us not only who God is and the link that he went to reconcile us to himself, but it also shows us who we are. John Stott in The Cross of Christ writes this, before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, leading us to faith and worship, we we have to see it as something done by us, leading us to repentance. You see, the cross shows us not only our sin, The cross shows us our Savior. And the cross is offensive in doing that. It either hardens us or it humbles us. And if we as a church are preaching and teaching Christ crucified, the world will hate us because the world hates the cross. That's the offense, not how we interact with people. Just because people are hated does not necessarily mean that they are preaching and teaching and proclaiming the cross. We, ourselves, I, and how I speak and how I act may be offensive, and yet we are called to just step back and let the cross be that which hardens people. Let the cross be that which humbles people. You see, the cross reminds all of us that we, we're, we're so sinful that, that Jesus had to die for us. You see, the cross humbles us out of our pride. 
And yet the cross also shows us that we are so loved that Jesus was glad to die for us. It assures us out of our fear. The cross of which Paul writes humbles us out of our pride and the cross assures us out of our fear. And so today, ask yourself this question. Am I humbled by the gospel? Am I assured by the gospel? Because you see, that cross really is double-edged. It will either humble us to the core or it will harden us to the core. Our relationship with ourself is finding rest. Because see Jesus as the maker and preacher of peace. He, he brings with him two gifts. He brings with him peace with God and the peace of God. Because in Christ you, you have the eternal peace with God. And because of this you have the peace of God. Now what do I mean? Well, Think about Romans 5.1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. But then we read in Philippians chapter 4, and the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Peace in the midst of trouble. Peace in in the midst of trials. We heard from John about Jesus leaving peace with his disciples. Jesus giving peace to his disciples. Reminding us at the end of his upper room discourse. He said all of these things to remind them that in the world they're going to have trouble. But in him they're going to have peace what a good reminder for me what a good reminder for all of us in the world trouble in Jesus peace indeed after the resurrection we read in John 20 and John 20 three times Jesus says peace be with you peace be with you Peace be with you. Three times his disciples needed that reassurance. And we do also. In Christ we can rest because as we heard in our assurance of pardon, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is now peace with God. And so our restless, weary, tired, fatigued soul is finding rest in Jesus. And third, if Jesus Christ is our peace, if he himself is our peace, then we demonstrate and declare the reality of being in a restored relationship with God and becoming at rest with ourself through our relationships with one another, relationships that are being reconciled, that are being recreated, that are being restored. 
Again, the center of gravity of our passage is making the two one, making the both one, creating in himself one new man. And we read in verse um, 14, he has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Well, what's that? Well, Paul's readers would be familiar with what was going on in Jerusalem with the temple and various areas for men and women, for the high priests and and areas where the Gentiles, the non-Jews could come in. And there was a, a wall and a sign that said trespassers would be killed. And we even saw that in Acts of how Paul was accused of bringing Gentiles into parts of the temple that they were not allowed. And yet... Through Christ, those dividing walls are eliminated. There is one new man. He abolishes the law of commandments and ordinances. Here, the emphasis, of course, is the ceremonial law that separated Jew and Gentile. But there is an aspect where the Jew became self-righteous and proud and used a good thing, the law of God, to separate from others with a superior attitude. And indeed, that attitude toward even the good law causes people to stumble. We can take even a good thing and misuse it. And that's one of the things happening. But Christ eliminated that wall. And so the cross here is to restore not just broken human beings individually, but also the broken human community. Again, the cross is offensive. It either hardens us or it humbles us. It's not just to save, Paul is saying, but to create one new man, one new people, defining characteristic of being in Christ, washed, as it were, by his blood. I hope you'll spend some time later today reading the something to think about quotes. But the one where D.A. Carson writes that the church is made up of natural enemies. The church is made up of natural enemies, not only, as it were, in a local church, but all around the world. Because what binds us together, he says, is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or nothing else of that sort. Christians come together because they have all been saved by Jesus Christ and owe him a common allegiance. What's at the center of relationships within the church? Jesus. Jesus is at the center. Because for the Christian, we realize that the ground is level at the cross. It really is hard, as it were, to look down on someone else when you're both looking up at the cross. Some of my best, deepest, strongest friendships in seminary were with classmates who didn't look like me, who weren't where I was from, who didn't do what I did before coming to seminary. No, they were from Africa and Korea and all over. But what united us was Jesus. 
What united us was not anything else in common but Jesus. Before we move on, ask yourself this question. Um, All of us have friendships and relationships to one degree or another, and it might be because we share something common, a common hobby, a common vocation, a common interest. But ask yourself, how many of my friendships are really centered on our common faith in Jesus Christ? He himself is our peace. My friends, if, if that reality becomes more and more evident in my life, in our lives, that, that, that Jesus himself is our peace, then we're going to be able to get along and we're going to be able to go along on mission together because he himself is our peace. Now, before we move on, Let's note what Paul has to say to the church in Rome. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Because we know that in a sinful and fallen world, there are times, there are relationships that seem to be not able to be restored, seem to not be able to be fixed. As far as it depends on you, live peaceably. Because how somebody else acts is out of your control. But later, just a few chapters later in Romans, Paul writes, therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. How has Christ welcomed you? Dead, sinful, running from him? That's how he welcomed us. While we were yet sinners, we read, Christ died for us. May that attitude of being astonished by the kindness and mercy and compassion and grace of God work its way into our friendships so that indeed we can welcome one another as Jesus has welcomed us for the glory of God. So the peace that arrives changes you. It changes your relationship to God, to yourself, and to others. Well, as we come to a conclusion, remember that this grace and this peace do not come from within you, but rather they come to you from the outside. And they come to us from a most unlikely source, Who is the source of this grace and this peace? He was born a poor baby. He lived life as a homeless man. And at the peak of his earthly ministry, he was abandoned by even those who swore that they would never leave him. And he was killed. A most unlikely source for our salvation. And you see, just as grace appeared because Jesus appeared on the scene, so also peace 
arrived because Jesus arrived on the scene. You remember the announcement that was made at his birth? Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased? Well, that announcement continues to be announced. That there is peace on earth among those with whom God is pleased. And who are the people with whom God is pleased? Who are people who God is really pleased with? We sang it earlier. It's people who have run to Jesus. Who have found in Jesus refuge and rescue. Again, there can be no peace between people unless there is peace within people. And there can be no peace within people unless they are at peace with God. So the question the text is asking us is this, are you at peace with God today, right now? You may be familiar with the statement of the church father, Augustine, from the 4th and 5th centuries. He wrote, For thou hast made us for thyself, and restless in our heart, and restless is our heart until it comes to rest in thee. In other words, God, you've made us for yourself, and our heart is restless until it finds rest in you the rest that you alone provide. So is your heart restless today? Our restless hearts come to rest. How do they slow down and stop and relax? How do they come to rest? Well, it's through the appearance of grace and the arrival of peace in Jesus Christ. In one way, you could could characterize the Protestant Reformation as the return of a recognition that, that grace has appeared in Jesus and that peace has arrived in Jesus himself. And toward the end of his letter to the Roman church, Paul writes this. We hear it every so often as a benediction. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may, be, you may abound in hope. Indeed, there is great joy and peace in believing. Believing what? Believing the gospel of the grace of God as Paul would say in Acts 20, 24. Grace and peace. Imagine that. Better. Know it firsthand and in person. My friends, what's in a name? In the case of the name of this church, what's in a name? Good news. Good news indeed. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, 
we thank you that the message of salvation has come to us. That that message, that word speaks of Jesus Christ living a perfect life of obedience that we are called to live. And it speaks of Jesus Christ dying a sacrificial, painful, shameful death on the cross for the rebellious life that we do live. And Father, we acknowledge that he did that for us and in our place. Oh God, would you be pleased such that the cross and the gospel does not harden us, but rather humble us. That we remember that those who humble themselves before you, you will exalt at the proper time. So Father, would you be pleased to help us not just to imagine a world of unity and peace, not just imagine what could happen, but rather what has happened through the person and work of Jesus. For we pray in his name. Amen. Jesus himself. You respond.